from God's Word, Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15, I'll read the first four verses and preach on the same. Revelation chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, if you'd like to follow along in your copy of God's Word, uh, you may turn there now. Revelation chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, our desire this morning is that we might have greater understanding as to the meaning of your word. But that this would not remain some mere intellectual exercise. For we know that even if we can understand and discern all things, yet hath not love, we are but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And our desire, O Lord, is that our lives might be filled not with a cacophonous noise merely of understanding, but a melody of saving faith and spiritual affections, not only for you, but for one another. And so grant us then, by that means that you have given to the church in every age, whereby to give saving faith, a faith that grows and is built up in righteousness, the preaching of your word. Give it the power. Give it the purpose for which it has been given, so that we might be servants fully equipped to every good deed. We ask this in your name. Amen. This morning we look at another song. There are a lot of songs in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of singing that happens in response to Christ's great acts of power upon the earth. Now, heretofore, if you've been following, you have detected a theme in my preaching as I have been moving through this great book. All of these songs, as I have just said, are responses to Christ's mighty power made manifest on earth, chiefly in the destruction of one Jerusalem and the erection of a new Jerusalem. The destruction of that old Jerusalem that stood as the city of the nation of Israel and at the center of that city upon the mountain, the holy temple. That temple, destroyed in and around 70 A.D., 
As Rome invaded as an instrument of God's wrath against his people for their rejection of Christ the Messiah. And in Revelation chapter 15, we find a bit of a prelude that is not unlike the other two preludes to the judgments that were to come. Here, this prelude to the bowls of judgment that would be poured out upon that city of Jerusalem, a final exercise of God's wrath against those to whom he came and yet was rejected. The stone which the builders rejected. The Messiah of whom they said, crucify him, give us Barabbas. And this song is a song not only then of, of grace, but also of judgment. It is a song of the Lamb, and it is the song of Moses. These two themes are woven into what we find in verses 3 through 4. And it should form the heart of every song we sing today. Not mutually exclusive ideas, but ideas that are beautifully wed together. The glory of Christ manifested on earth in grace and judgment. Point number one, then, the song of the Lamb which is a song of deliverance, the song of the Lamb, and then second, the song of Moses. The song of Moses. I'm taking these out of order, but we will cover both of these things nonetheless. Let's look at the first point this morning, the song of the Lamb. We see that song, verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, which is why I said I'm taking them out of order. I'm flipping them around. The song of the Lamb is a song of deliverance. Now, prior to the pouring out of God's final judgment against Jerusalem, there is this song that is the theme of that judgment. And as I said earlier, this chapter or these few verses serve as a prelude of what is to come. There is a similar prelude in chapters 4 through 5 before the seven seals, and there is a prelude in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, before the seven trumpets. There will then come seven bowls. You'll find that in chapter 16. These bowls, again, are symbolic expressions of divine wrath, of God's righteousness against unbelief. Now, of this theme, of God's judgment, David Chilton, who was a commentator, a writer, that focused a lot on the apocalyptic session, uh, sections of Scripture uh, and also Revelation, writes this. There is no reason to assume that these must be the last plagues in an ultimate, absolute, and universal sense. That means at the end of time. Rather, in terms of the specifically limited purpose and scope of the book of Revelation, they comprise the final outpouring of God's wrath his great cosmic judgment against Jerusalem, abolishing the old covenant world order once and for all. Now, you've heard these types of things in my preaching. What Christ is showing the church through the visions of John and what he beholds in symbolic expression is a, a transfer from the old world order to the new world order 
in the manifestation of Christ's authority as he takes the seat that is the throne of heaven and earth. As Christ comes to the throne, as he rules and reigns, his first order of business is to establish his throne universally. And in order for the saints of God to understand and have confidence that his church, that is the New Jerusalem, connected to the holy heavenly city of God, is a global reality, that place which he once called all nations to, the physical Jerusalem, has ceased. You and I, therefore, do not have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to dwell in the presence of God. Revelation, then, is an apocalyptic expression of all of those teachings of Christ in the Gospels. It does not depend upon where you are, but who you're with. John 4. Remember what Christ said to his disciples and to the woman there at the well? It is not on that mountain or this mountain, but where? Wherever there is word and spirit. Word and spirit. Word and spirit. In fact, the scriptures say elsewhere that wherever there are two or more gathered in Christ's name, he is there with them. The communion of the saints is Christ's presence on earth. And so whether we have full attendance, half attendance, whatever it may be, when we gather for worship and there is word, prayer, and sacrament, guess what? Christ is present. He's here. He's here with us. And his power is manifested among us. And not just when we worship, but wherever the church is laboring, Christ is present. And in order for that reality to be hammered home, Christ reminds us that temple, not necessary. He tears it down. And so the song of the Lamb is first and foremost the song of those who are united to Christ Jesus' death and resurrection, who have been raised to where he is and worship him in the splendor of holiness. It is a song of and for the victorious ones. And that is what we find. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, so those are the bowls, that will be poured out in chapter 16. For in them the wrath of God is complete against Jerusalem. Now verse 2. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. Those of whom we read of earlier in the book of Revelation. The beast, the image of that beast, the mark that was born on the names of those, or by those who on earth represented him, and those who bore his name. And they stand on the sea of glass, and they're playing instruments, and they sing. Who are these people? Well, I would argue that this is the same number of those whom we have seen throughout Revelation. These are those whom Israel sought to put to death and did put to death and Rome put to death as martyrs in the early church. Those martyrs who were in the first part of the book of Revelation crying out to Christ, how long? 
And they were speaking with Christ. They were worshiping Christ. And Christ is answering their prayer in the unfolding pages of Revelation. And he is showing them, you do not have to wait long. You need only wait until Jerusalem is leveled by the wrath of God. And so those who suffered like Christ at the hands of a nation, Israel, though beloved and chosen by God, had become even more wicked than Egypt and Babylon and Sodom, having put the saints to death, now receive from Christ their reward. Though they suffered for Christ on earth, they are brought before his presence in heaven. And they are comforted by the knowledge and are filled with the song that includes not just the description of their own redemption, but the description of Israel's judgment on earth. Now, let me make another point. And I've made this point before, but there are points that are universal as it relates to the interpretation and application of Revelation. Though Revelation speaks and John sees things that have happened, they are thematic and typological. They are repeated like a refrain in music throughout history. And one of those themes or refrains is the judgment of God against ungodliness. Now, Israel's judgment is particular as it relates to the unfolding plan of God's redemptive history on earth. And so as we shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the manner in which the covenant was revealed in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, God is showing us that those who are his children are clearly those by faith. It is not enough then to be simply the biological offspring of Abraham. You must possess, as Abraham did, saving faith. You must believe upon Christ and you shall be saved. If you deny Christ, there is no salvation. When Christ came to the Jews, his own people, there were some who believed. But by and large, the majority of them rejected him and had him put to death by the state, that state, that nation of Rome, that occupied Israel at that time. Many saints after him, not to mention almost all of the apostles, though John was freed by God's grace, even though he was tortured, he was ultimately exiled, and then Christ came to him on the Lord's day, on a Sunday, and he gave to John these words so that he might write to the church and say, Take heart. You are the covenant people of God. You bear his name. And yet there are still those on earth, even those who belong to the covenant, who bear the mark of the beast because they have rejected Christ. And so that principle comes to the surface that we have already seen. You either bear Christ's name or the beast's name. Everyone has one of two names. And those names, those names separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. And what the saints see in heaven 
And what they sing is in response to what God has done in exalting, in honoring, in bringing them before his presence because they have been faithful even unto death. So what do they see? Well, they see more than what we see because they're there. But we see something of what they see. We see a lake or a sea of glass. Now, this is not the first time we've seen the sea of glass. Do you remember what I said about it the first time? Don't worry. I had to go back and refresh myself. (laughs) It's a thick book. In fact, I've been preaching from this book now for over a year. This is my 41st sermon from this book. I don't put the numbers of the sermons in the bulletin because I don't want you to look at it and go, oh man, we've been in this book a long time. (laughs) We have. It's a beautiful book that relates to us the, the, the workings of God in history, though. It is a sea, not unlike the Red Sea, in that it is a revelation of the division between those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. But it is also that, that glass through which those who have gone to heaven perceive that which we see dimly. It is symbolic of the laver in the tabernacle in the temple wherein the priests would wash themselves. This is why I said it is symbolic of the Red Sea. When God brings Israel to the edge of the Red Sea, they begin to grumble, don't they? Because they fear Egypt. And God says to Moses, go down into the sea and raise your staff. And the sea parted and they walked across on dry land. In fact, I just taught on that section in my middle school Bible survey class. And all the questions were like, do you think they saw fish? What did the water look like? I cannot imagine. But the water stopped. And so you had these massive walls of water. I would imagine like the aquarium to which you go. And you have these massive pieces of glass. And on the other side are the the whales and the sharks and the fish. And you could just look. And there's Israel walking through this dry ground, beholding the marvel of God's saving, consecrating, separating salvation. For even as it went through the Red Sea and they were on the other side, Egypt went down. All of a sudden, the ground became muddy and their chariots bogged down and were stuck. And then God went, whoop. And they were all drowned in the tide. Separation. And what did Israel see from the other side? What do you see on the other side? Something that you did not think you would ever see. A sight that is the product of passing over. How much more in death in the glorious courts of heaven, even those who suffered on the other side of the sea at rest. They see things more clearly than they have ever seen them. More clearly than you and I see them. The scriptures say, even now through a glass darkly we behold. Why? Because in God's providence we are still members of the church militant. There is an incredible thick fog of war 
in light of God's glory and his providence that we cannot see far down the road. We do not know these things. And so this consecrating, washing presence of that through which they now behold the things of earth, they see things as those who are in Christ Jesus united and around the throne. They see his power at work in ways that you and I do not see. But we see something of it, don't we? Because we see the sea. We see them seeing the sea. (laughs) We see something in John's writings that we would not have otherwise seen without the book of Revelation. And so all of Revelation, when I say Revelation, I mean from Genesis to the book of Revelation, we see things in a clearer way than we would otherwise. This is why you ought to open God's word. Because it manifests for you spiritual sight. Do not neglect, then, to open God's word, to fail to read it, or to understand it. But to endeavor to read it and understand the plans and purposes of God. Now, they sing in response to what they have seen. And what do they sing? They sing a song that has two songs woven into it. It is a song that comprises the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, when you hear the song of the Lamb, that language, what do you think of? The Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. The Lamb of God who, though slain, is standing upon the throne. When John sees Christ, he sees a Lamb upon the throne. And what is a lamb in the scriptures? It is an element of redemption. It is the mechanism whereby God pardons the sins of those who hide beneath the blood of the altar and the sacrifice. The song of the lamb is a song of deliverance. It's that simple. And so in light of the deliverance of God... What comes in the second part of verse 3 and all of verse 4? Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. It is a song of love and affection and devotion to the one who has been slain. And for those who are singing it here, they are singing as those who are hidden in Christ, whose very souls have been brought before the throne, for whom Christ has died, and they sing it then as those who are rejoicing. For them it is a happy song. It is a glorious song. It is a marvelous song. It is a just and true song because it is built upon God's character and actions and the effect that his character and actions have upon the earth. Every song we sing should have this theme woven into it. But there is another theme that is woven into this song. It is not just a song of deliverance and a song of the Lamb. It is also a song of Moses. Now, let's step back again. 
Revelation is an expression of a glorious new world order. I have said it already. I will say it again. One Jerusalem. The physical Jerusalem has passed away in a most visible way as the judgment of Christ has been poured out upon it. We are not waiting then for the rebuilding of the temple. That is not something we're waiting for. Our hope is not there. We do not desire in the re-sacrificing of animals that will come when that temple is rebuilt. There are those, even those who call themselves Christians, who wait for that. They are wrong. They should not wait for that. But now, the new Jerusalem has been established and is built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which will water the whole earth. This is Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 47. We have a temple that is the saints. There is water flowing from that temple that is the Holy Spirit. And from the church that is Christ's presence on earth, The Holy Spirit is going out into the nations and is filling up and is covering over so that the Holy Spirit will at some point in even greater measure than he is today manifest the peace of the gospel unto the nations. And no one can stop him. No one can stop him. Satan is powerless. And he comes forth from you and from me As the corporate body of Christ. It's happening right now. There's a great example for us right here. The power of water. Right? It changes everything. For some reason, everyone is later than usual to worship. Why? It just... It affects everything it does. Have you ever tried to stand against a a six-foot swell or... The tide, this is just six feet. I saw recently in Portugal a man surfing a 100-foot wave. Now, why people are standing out there watching, I don't know. I I hope they're far enough back. But a 100-foot wave, it wouldn't just drown you. It would beat your body to a bloody pulp. Water. And this is the image that we have The Holy Spirit will go forth into the world in such a way that it will not bring forth destruction as the flood once did, but it will do what? It is a tide of life. A river whereby trees will be planted and the fruit of those trees will be unto the healing of the nations. This is the glorious new order that John is speaking of in the book of Revelation. And why is that important to the church then? And why is it important to us now? Well, at that time, the church was suffering much at the hands of a great empire who appeared to be the tide, the force on earth. There was nothing outside of Rome. There, yes, were these little pagan tribes, knuckle-dragging Gentiles, those kinds of peoples. But Rome, Rome was the great empire. And who could stand against her? Those who bore the name of Christ. Those gathered around the throne. Those who, though even they suffered, 
are not separated from God. We need this book. Because A, we need to know how to sing, and B, we need to be told to have brave hearts, courageous hearts, so that even in our suffering we might see that we are victorious. And this song, as I have already said, is not only built on deliverance of grace, of mercy, but also judgment. Now, when I say the Song of Moses, what do you think of? Well, there are five psalms, six psalms, I can't remember exactly, in the Psalter that are psalms written by Moses. But that is not what John means. And I don't think he means Exodus 15. Are you familiar with that, the Song of Moses? After Israel had been delivered, Moses and his sister both penned and sang psalms. Those songs were in response to God's deliverance of Israel and the condemnation and the destruction of Egypt. But let us remember what event is being marked here. Though it is the deliverance of the true Israel, it is also the judgment of the nation of Israel, the physical, the temple, the city. It is Deuteronomy 32. In fact, I didn't preach that long ago on Deuteronomy 32. Do you remember? (laughs) Don't worry. I had to go back and review it as well. And in fact, in the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is relaying in a sermon slash song God's mercy and covenant favor to those who are obedient and God's judgment upon those who violate and break the covenant. And this is what Moses says of Israel. One day you will disobey. And the offenses of Israel will rise to the level even beyond that of Egypt and Sodom. Why? How can a nation commit the same sins of Sodom and Egypt, but be more guilty in their sins than Sodom and Egypt? Because they saw things. They heard things. Because God revealed to them His mercy and kindness over and over and over again. Parents and children, it is not unlike you pleading with your children over and over again and they continue to rebel against your authority. It's very different than your neighbor's kid disobeying, isn't it? And that child whom you have nursed and fed and clothed and housed, for them to say, I hate you, is a far greater offense than the neighbor's kid and their insolence, isn't it? The relationship is different, and so the rejection. It is covenantal, deeply covenantal in nature. Christ came to his own, and his own did not receive him. This is not just a song of deliverance. It is a song of Moses. It is a song of judgment. Great and marvelous deeds do not have to be happy ones. You see, we live in a day and age where people establish churches and liturgies where every time someone goes, if they feel the slightest negative emotion, then the church has done something wrong. Do you know what I mean? They arrange the whole thing. You don't even have to be with your children. Wow. It's like dating at church. (laughs) 
You get to go be by yourself. You get to be told everything is all right. You get to be told happy, happy. Everybody clap. There's nothing negative. Don't look out that door. Just close your eyes and shut yourself off to the things of the world. Do you see this as a trend? And there are pastors who even fail to preach upon sin and judgment and wrath. Why? Because how can we market that? (laughs) You can't. You can't. And you shouldn't. And when the saints in heaven are singing and they're freed from sin, guess what they're singing about? Wrath. They're still singing about wrath. Why? For this reason. Because the glory of God, in light of his revealed will, what God has shown he will do and is doing, contains mercy and wrath. Mercy and wrath. In fact, you have actually never met anyone that does not believe in wrath or want the wrath of God or some God or God's. They just don't want it on God's terms. But these saints who have felt personally, as Christ did, sinful rebellion poured out upon them, even taking their very lives, now sing a psalm of God's mercy and justice. They sing of judgment because God's glory is manifested in judgment. And so in the same way that we say great and marvelous are the works of God, when we see people converted, so we can also sing of the great and marvelous works of God when God withholds mercy and brings judgment. Do you have that Impulse welling up in your heart. Maybe even when you're watching a film and you see some great injustice committed. I don't know what I would do. Some of that's bad because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Some of that is holy, righteous. Recently in Montana, of all places, they failed to pass a born-alive bill in which a child who survives an abortion, it is required by a doctor to care for that child. By law, that measure did not pass. That's amazing to me. And I remember speaking to someone the other day about that. And they said, in Montana? Can you believe it? And I could see in them the same sensation I had when I heard that. And this is not unique. These measures are being passed all over the place. What are they thinking? What would you do? A child left out on the street, a helpless infant. This law would allow someone to simply say, while in a doctor's office, no, that baby's life just expires. 
What do you think when you hear that? Better yet, what do you feel? Has, you, has any OPC pastor ever asked you that question? What do you feel? I feel utter contempt and anger. How can you even write it down? How can 500,000 people say it's okay? That's my question. And one day, all of those who hold to such principles, who do not seek salvation in Christ, and not just those kinds of people, but you and me, the things I've thought and said and done, those things that God's wrath rightly should be poured out Upon because I've done them in idolatrous haste. There's not a day in my life where I have not known on some level what is right and what is wrong. And every sin that I have ever committed, guess what? Has been done with eyes wide open to the knowledge of God's righteousness and what he requires of me. And so too everyone in the nation of Israel. When they saw Christ, they did not mistake him. They hated him. Why? Because they love their darkness more than the light. And so God's word has come to us, those who are in the darkness, in order to do what? So that we might see things as they are. So that we might have consecrated hearts and consecrated sight to see as the saints in heaven see and so sing as the saints in heaven sing. Not only of grace, but of judgment. Great and marvelous are your works. For Christ has not only come into the world to save sinners, but to do all that is right. To bring about even upon the ungodly judgments, the end of verse 4. For it is in the display of God's mercy and justice that we are actually given something to sing. And when we sing this way, we join the martyrs of heaven. When we sing this way, we give the world instruction as to how to live. Live this way. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. And it is in this song and in the revelation of God's judgment and mercy that all the nations will then come to him. What good is a peace treaty if there is no threat of war besides? What is it? Parents, what good is it if you say to your kids, now you better watch if it is only threat and never discipline? No, God withholds or holds out to the nations of earth both judgment or mercy. And what he has given the church to do now is to clarify and to give voice and to make clear how both are accomplished. How then do we have mercy? We plead the blood of Christ, we confess our sins. And when we do, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
But if we do not confess that which do we know to be true of us, if we are hardened in our sins, if we reject the salvation of Christ, then there is no salvation for us. We are like Egypt, chariots bogged in the mud, waiting for the waters to come over us. How can then we not sing, excuse me, how can we not then sing as those who have been washed? How can we not sing as those on the other side, as those who know judgment and know mercy, and to sing of those things so that we in our worship might make manifest to the world God's power? Let's pray.